0: You're listening to the Eat With Grace podcast. I'm one of your
1: hosts, Dr. Jackie Nienhuis, registered dietitian and professor of culinary medicine. And I am your co-host, Brooke Fredrickson, registered dietitian and certified diabetes care and education specialist. And we are here to challenge a culture around food and nutrition from a biblical perspective.
0: Hello, this is Jackie Nienhuis. And your uh, my co-host Brooke, and we are so glad to be here with you today. And we have been working through this podcast at pushing back against the culture um, around food and nutrition from a biblical perspective. You know, one of the big areas that I constantly hear from my patients is about food sensitivities and food sensitivity testing. And uh, we wanted to deep dive into this to to look at what it is and to see, um, is it legitimate? Is it something that we need? Brooke, what is food sensitivity testing and what are some different things that people find out from it? And is it something we need to do
1: and need to know? This is one of those areas that I'm kind of on the fence about. Um, to be perfectly honest, I've seen a lot of harms come out of food sensitivity testing. Um, I've also seen people helped by it, but I think one thing that's important to clarify with people is like what it's actually testing for and what that process looks like. Because I think so many people go into it thinking that uh, if they go and have this, you know, this food sensitivity test done, and they're given this list of, you know, fifty foods that they're sensitive to. Um, that they're that they're like allergic to them and should never eat them. And that's just not true. <clears throat> so the mechanism behind the testing, it's usually done by um, a blood test. And what they're looking for is they're testing your IgG. It's a part of your immune system they're checking um, to see if there's any reaction to it. Now, what that IgG test does, um, it's not showing that you're allergic to these foods but what it's showing is how you, how much you've been exposed to those foods, right? So it's showing how often that food has entered your body and how many antibodies against that food your body has, because anytime we put something foreign into our body, uh, our body creates antibodies against it, right? It's this um, protective way of, of, that our body uses to uh, make sure that, you know, we're not, we're not going to get sick or, um, you know, anytime there's a foreign invader into our body, even good food that's not tainted, um, our body creates some antibodies against it. So it's checking this IgG antibody. Um, and it's just, it's only showing exposure. And that's the problem. I think it doesn't show that you're sensitive. It doesn't show that you're intolerant. It doesn't show that you're allergic. It doesn't show that it's negative in any way. It's only shown exposure. So what's going to happen is when you get these tests back, it's going to show pretty much the most common foods that you eat, right, are going to be probably on that list. Um, If you eat chicken all the time, it might be high on that list. If you eat, you know, gluten all the time, it might be high on that list. It doesn't mean that you're allergic to it or that you're sensitive to it. But what that test does do then, or what the purpose of it is, is to say, okay, if you're having symptoms around food and you think you could be allergic to a food or intolerant to a food or sensitive to a food, maybe you should start with, you know, maybe you should start by eliminating or cutting back on some of these foods that are on this list. Because if these are the foods that you're eating all the time, it's most likely one of those things that's causing those symptoms. The problem with it is, I don't think uh, the doctors or the healthcare providers who provide these tests explain that well enough to people. I think people leave that office thinking these are the foods I need to avoid, and then they never go back to eating them again, or um, they they consider them an allergy, and you know, it just it becomes this really restrictive thing, and it's never intended to be that way. Um, I think part of it would be you know, the, the way to do it would be to sure. You could try to eliminate some of those things, do a very short-term elimination diet, go without those rings for a little bit. And then you slowly add one in at a time and then monitor yourself for symptoms. If you don't have any symptoms to those things, you don't need to avoid them, right? You're not sensitive to them. There's no physical reason to avoid them. And so that's the proper way of doing it. I just know that it's it's kind of abused and done the wrong way all the time. So I don't know what your thoughts are on it, Jackie, but that's my take.
0: I think that the testing is actually very expensive and Mm -hmm. the the costs to your health can be really high if you get a list of say 12 foods that you're supposed to totally cut out of your diet. And by cutting those 12 foods out, all of a sudden you're um, risking your health. Because you're not getting all the nutrients and, and all of that that you need. You know, these tests could be beneficial if you do find a true uh, food sensitivity. But it's so hard because we can't customize the tests for specific foods. They're not covered by insurance. So you're going to be covered uh, covering out of pocket they're not gonna be standardized. So you can go to one doctor with a uh, do a test and to get one result. You go to another doctor, you're gonna get another result. So all of a sudden it's very, very confusing. Like you said, you could do an elimination diet after you get your test back and see that if it helps, but you could skip the sensitivity test and do an elimination diet on your own also. And what do you think of trying, um, I think you probably need to work with a dietitian to do a sensitivity test, but um, Brooke, do you work with people doing that?
1: I have. So I've seen people after they've had food sensitivity testing done, and then they've come to me really frustrated because they're like, I can't eat anything. What am I supposed to do? Or, um, I've seen it a lot in kids. There's a couple kids that I've worked with who've had it done. And they're like, my child is losing weight because they can't eat anything, which is a big deal. Um, it's, you know, causing nutritional possible growth deficiencies in these kids because their diet is so restricted. So, um, one other thing, what was your question? If you do elimination diets. Oh, okay. So, yeah, as far as the elimination diet part, um, I have worked with people too who thought that they had some kind of food sensitivity um, or intolerance because they'd been having these weird symptoms. And my advice for them, right, it wasn't to go get tested because I don't think those tests are that helpful. Um, But the first thing to do is to keep a food diary. I think everyone, if you have weird symptoms going on, if you're having, you know, frequent headaches or, you know, GI symptoms or something start keeping a food diary and track what you're eating and when the symptoms occur um, you might be able to pinpoint what it is I had a co-worker one time who was having issues and I told her to keep a food diary she did it for five days and we were able to pinpoint eggs so even on days where she wasn't having eggs if she had mayo or anything else that had eggs in it she was getting these weird headaches and um you know, it didn't take long for us to figure it out. And so I think it's very easy for someone to identify it that way. And then of course, yes, then you can eliminate it and see if those symptoms go away. If they go away, then that's what it was. So. Very
0: interesting. You know, I uh, did a little bit of uh, testing on myself because I was getting headaches and I found out it's even small, small amounts of caffeine. Mm. And, um, you know, it did not show up the next day, it showed up in about 48 hours. But every single time I even had small, small amounts of caffeine, 48 hours later, I would get this headache. And so um, I do think, I do think that uh, you can tell from a food diary, you can tell what it goes. You know, I have more worked with patients who have not had the food sensitivity test who um, their doctors have referred them to me because of, of different issues and their fear of allergies. And so we would go through this elimination diet and work on it. Um, it really depends upon how well they journal and how well they keep track. Because if you do it at the end of the day and you think back what you ate, you might miss a couple things here and there. Um, so it depends on how good your memory is, how much you write it down, and sometimes things like something might seem inconsequential, like okay, I had mayonnaise on a sandwich. You, you could just say I had a sandwich, and you would totally miss that there were eggs in the mayonnaise, and the mayonnaise was on the sandwich. So
1: yeah, no, it's definitely important for them to be detailed. Yeah, detailed food diaries. Otherwise, you would miss something, but. So food sensitivities are something that can like show up randomly. Right. And they can go away on their own. I'm assuming it's kind of like an allergy um, or an intolerance that maybe can show up at any time and go away. Is that your understanding of it, Jackie? You know, I think there's a little
0: bit of a difference between an intolerance and a food allergy, Um, Mm -hmm. although there are some similarities, like you say. So looking at the differences, an intolerance usually means it's dose dependent, meaning that if you have a large amount of some food, your stomach's upset, your digestive system is showing you it doesn't like it. Usually it's caused by not having the digestive enzymes to break that food down. So it's dose dependent. Like if you eat a small amount of it, you're okay. But if you have Um, a whole glass of something or a whole, a large serving of something, then you're going to have more discomfort. Whereas a food allergy, a true food allergy, a small amount will have an effect. Mm -hmm. And um, just take a a gluten allergy or celiac sprue patients who cannot eat gluten, a small amount of gluten is still going to, create a problem in the digestive tract in that it destroys the microvilli. So um, there's a little bit of difference between intolerances and allergies, but boy, we are learning so much more about both of those now than what we knew in the past. One of the interesting things about food allergies, um, we use, the doctors used to say, wait to give uh, foods that might cause an allergy past, when the child's one year old now they're saying the earlier you introduce it the less likely they're to get it. So Brooke that goes back to your point and it exactly proves what you're saying that these these are come and go kind of things.
1: Yeah. I know when I was young I had um I don't know if they were true allergies or if they were just sensitivities but I had issues with peanuts and eggs and tomatoes corn and I think milk Uh, I had testing done. I had a skin prick test done. So I think that's allergies and not sensitivities. Um, And I was able to do the drops and I I was able a year later to start eating those things again. And I've been fine. I've never had any issues since. So I know that allergies can come go. Um, Allergies are an immune response. It's your immune system responding to something. Um, And like you said, intolerance is usually doesn't involve the immune system. Um, But yeah, it's, it's interesting to see how that goes. But I feel like with the food sensitivities, uh, I know it's become a big thing with all of the different testing out there. I mean, you can even self-test. I think there's some things that you can order online like a kit and do it yourself. I have no idea how accurate they are. I would think they were probably not very accurate, but do you think food sensitivities in general are increasing or is it just because there's more testing and stuff available out there that people are uh, more aware of it or talking about it. What are your, what are your thoughts on that?
0: Well, I think if you talk to um,
1: doctors and
0: researchers and those who really look into it, I think you could have an, a really good argument for either side. Mm. You know, you'll you'll meet those that say that all oh, our food supply has changed, that um, you know our bodies we have more uh, sensitivities to it, and then you'll have other people with a lot of evidence showing how you know, it really hasn't changed. So um, maybe that's not a satisfactory answer for that. But, but it is, uh, it is something that happens. Um, You know, just to bring in another subject. uh, I have a doctor who we were talking about antidepressants and how many people take antidepressants. And so the question came up, are there more people needing it today or are we just more aware of it? Mm-hmm. And she felt like antidepressants are under-prescribed, where I look at it as, wow, so many people are on it. So with food sensitivities, I kind of think it's the same kind of issue. Some, right. some doctors feel like it's underprescribed, and then there's uh, those who feel like, okay, this has become a fad.
1: So that means that people are picking up on it without truly having the uh, food sensitivities. You know, you'd almost have to go back to like a hundred years ago. I mean, not even that far, probably even 50 years ago and see like, did people still have these same symptoms around food and they just didn't know what it was? And now we know what it is. Or is this a new thing? We're right. Um, People are more sensitive or, or developing weird things because of maybe all of the different, stuff added to our food. I mean, I think there's probably environmental things that could be, you know, part of that, um, how our immune system is responding to these things. I think there's so many factors and variables that could be triggering this stuff that, yeah, it's hard to know, is it actually the food or is it all this other stuff going on in our environment that's causing this? And what is, what is the true culprit? I'm not, I'm not sure for, if, if we're ever going to be able to know what that is. But I do think I do think it's kind of
0: interesting to do elimination diets on yourself. And, um, you know, if if it seems like bread is bothering you, it's possible that the digestive enzymes just aren't there to handle large loads of it. And so you could um, eliminate wheat bread and have bread made with like an heirloom wheat, like spelt or um, some other kind of wheat that's uh, not been changed through the centuries. And you can see if it makes a difference. Does that kind of wheat feel differently? Another thing you could do is um, try sourdough bread because sourdough bread in the process they have, there's prebiotics and probiotics in the bread and it degrades the gluten to the point that some people with gluten sensitivities are fine with having sourdough bread. And we did some extensive uh, systematic analysis of all the re- uh, research around this to see if if it seemed like people with celiac sprue could eat um, sourdough bread. And it looks like the verdict is still out. And I would not recommend that for celiac sprue patients. But if you have, just a discomfort caused by um, flour or bread or something in the bread, you might try some of these other types of breads and you can tell yourself, okay, I've done this for five days. I've had no gluten or I I have had gluten, but I have used um, sourdough kind of product that has a long fermentation, degraded the gluten and I feel good.
1: So that would be a very interesting test people could do for themselves. Right. And, you know, I have no problem if people want to do stuff like that. I think that's a great thing to try out, especially if you're having symptoms. The problem that I see is people try to cut out too many things at one time, and then you have no idea what it is. So like, I know people who will go on like a whole 30 diet or like a paleo or something, they'll get rid of grains. They'll get rid of dairy. They'll get rid of legumes. They'll like do all of this stuff at one time and they feel better, but it's like, okay, but you just eliminated like half of your diet. And now you have no idea what was causing the problems. I doubt it was all of them. Right. So then you're going to have to slowly add things back in to see what it is where, like what you said, Jackie, if you think it's, you know, I would say there's probably, you know, you could probably pick like the top five most common triggers and maybe just start with one of those. Like you said, whether it's gluten, um, dairy is very, very common. Um, maybe eggs, you know, something like that start with that and just try it for a week and see if you notice a difference, but just do one at a time, because when you eliminate massive amounts of food or, uh, nutrients like that it's going to be impossible it'll be like a n- needle in a haystack trying to figure out which one of those things was actually actually causing the issues and i think there's a lot of fear in people trying to add things back in because they're like oh well i feel great now but i don't want to go back to feeling the way i was so like it prevents them from trying to add things back in because they're worried that maybe that symptom will come back um and they're restricting themselves too much so
0: Another thing that happens when people are very restrictive with the kinds of foods they eat, sometimes if they add that food back in, their body really can't handle it, especially if they took it in large amounts. Let's take somebody who hasn't eaten meat for two or three years. If they all of a sudden eat a large steak, it's going to feel really different in their stomach, first of all. Secondly, it's not something they're used to digesting. So that's gonna be a difference. And third, there could be a difference in their digestive enzymes that they're not gonna break that steak down as well. But if they added small amounts in slowly, they could go back to eating meat if they wanted to.
1: Yes, I definitely agree with that. You wanna, if you're gonna introduce anything back into your diet, you wanna do it slowly. Um, Those enzymes do change over time. That is one thing that I've heard with lactose intolerance. Like for people who have lactose intolerance, the more they go without any dairy, the less enzyme their body actually produces. So when they do have it, they actually get sicker. So it's actually better to have a little, you know, a little bit that you can tolerate, or if you're going to start slowly and kind of work your way up again. So your body has the ability um, to rebuild that enzyme. I think it also has a um, new research has shown that even like with the probiotics in your gut, those things change with any major diet changes too. So if you eliminate a food that the bacteria in your gut feeds on, and all of a sudden you introduce that food back in after you've kind of killed off that bacteria, that's going to cause digestive issues too. So you do, you definitely want to start slowly and work it back in to avoid any any discomfort in that area.
0: And it does make a difference what kind of food sensitivity tests that we're talking about because there are food sensitivity tests on the market that um, require blood draw. And they're similar to those that might be conducted in a lab. But there's also tests that use like strands of hair or um, a cheek swab. And these tests, they don't look at the um, IgG antibodies or the cellular reactions to identified food sensitivities. So they're probably not going to be as accurate. And um, you know, a strand of hair has been in the environment for however long your hair is. And if your hair is, uh, you know, to your shoulders, that means that it's been exposed to the environment for probably a year after (laughs) it comes out of your body. Yeah. So, you know, you're testing something totally different maybe than food sensitivities. You might be testing whatever's in the air, what's in your shampoo, what's in your conditioner and
1: um, not yeah. truly
0: food sensitivities.
1: Yeah, I've seen hair strand testing done um, looking for like nutrient deficiencies. Um, I think there are there's a partial truth in that. I think they can look and see like if you've been exposed to lead Um, or anything like that. But again, it's gonna be past. It's gonna be probably, you know, a few months ago, it's gonna tell you where you're at. Nothing is gonna be current because like you said, your hair's on the outside of your head. Like once it's out, it's it's like it's dead, right? Um, So it's, I don't, I definitely don't think that is good use of like food allergies or sensitivities. I don't see how that would work at all to prove any of that stuff. So if anyone's advertising it that way, don't fall for it. (laughs) Yeah,
0: when we're looking at at food, we really are all about being able to enjoy life, being able to um, be healthy, being able to serve God, being able to do what you're meant to do in this life. And we don't want to add any restrictions to that any more than we have to. So the only time you want to restrict food is when you have a medical reason to restrict food or a health reason to restrict food. So that's something to keep in mind. And it makes everything very easy to separate, you know, are you restricting food for a health reason or medical reason? Every other reason, you know, if you want to do it, that's fine. But if it, it creates chaos in your life, having to restrict that food, if it uh, changes your priorities of, of putting God first, then you probably
1: want to re-examine why am I doing this and how important is it to me? So i want to ask you what your opinion is on this. So I know a lot of people that will bring in their kids for food sensitivity testing, um, because of the child's behaviors, right? So if the kid is a little wild, um, if they're, you know, think they have ADHD or some other kind of, you know, attention deficit, something, um, maybe the kid is just not well-behaved. I know parents will think that maybe it's something in their food that's causing that. And they will, I know like, I've seen in in some of the naturopathic areas, they'll put people on you know gluten- free casein- free diets or they'll get rid of red dyes and they'll do that kind of stuff. Um, I haven't read the research on that, so I really can't speak to that myself. But as far as eliminating food for behavior issues, what are your thoughts on that, Jackie? You know,
0: um, there are, are always nuances that um, So I don't want to make a blanket statement about this. So there could be exceptions to this. But for the most part, unless you have a nutrient deficiency, or there's a problem with um, absorbing the nutrients in the food, etc. You know, food really doesn't react in our body quite the way it's advertised like that. And I agree that there's a lot of environmental things that probably aren't that healthy for us. There's probably a lot of red dyes and things like that that aren't that healthy for us, but it's probably going to show up in other ways than our behavior. You'll find on the internet uh, why sugar is kryptonite, and Mm. it talks about the um, ADH diet truths. Now, (laughs) this puts children through an incredibly stressful situation that really borders on abuse sometimes. Yeah. Um, parents think they're doing best for their children by saying, okay, we're going to make everything from scratch so we don't have to add this, there's nothing of this, there's nothing of this, et cetera. When you go through the school lunch line, don't take any of this, don't take any of this, don't take any of this or this. And you know the child tries really hard just to do their best because they want to do what their parents have convinced them they need to do. They're trying hard, but it alienates them from their peers at a birthday party. It alienates them, their peers at lunch. And a year later, their parents are like, okay, we're over that. We're on to the next thing now. Um, that is not good for a child's mental health. It starts to make them question all their food. It makes them question what they're being told. It makes them question, okay, why was I on this diet? Why was I on this, had this
1: diagnosis? Now I have this one and this one. Yep. So. Yeah, and I think it's been proven over and over again. Sugar does not cause hyperactivity. And sugar does not cause behavior issues. Like it just, it's not possible. The way that sugar is metabolized in our body is the way that every other carbohydrate is metabolized in our body. Um, Can you get a sugar high or like a spike in sugar? I guess maybe you could, Um, but it doesn't... It's, it's not as big of a problem as I think a lot of people think it is. They're like, well, if my child is disobedient and not paint, then I, he had too much sugar. That's just not true. And so, yeah, like you said, Jackie, I think it's, it's really sad when I see kids like that, where their parents are like, they don't let them have sugar um, at a birthday party. They don't let them have cake at a birthday party because you know, the sugar might, might make them crazy or something. I'm like, well, maybe it's just the environment. Maybe it's a birthday party and kids get crazy when they're all together and they jump around and they scream and they run around and they do things. Like, I don't think behavior like there's no food that affects our behavior like that. There just isn't. Drugs, yes, but food is food does not do that. And so I think for any parent out there who is struggling with, you know, maybe a strong-willed child or or a or a kid that's um just a little wild sometimes, please Please don't take food away from them for that. Please don't um, blame sugar for that because it just—it—that's um, it, it, not the problem. That's not the problem. Deal with the behavior instead. Right. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Um, on
0: the other hand a well-balanced diet that includes vegetables, complex carbohydrates, fruits, and plenty of protein will have an effect on your child and that they're going to be healthier. They're going to have more energy. They're going to feel like doing things. And I've even had parents say that when their kids are just eating a normal, nice, healthy diet, that their behavior tends to be more consistently under control. So I I think just um, eating a good Mm -hmm.
1: diet is important. Well, and honestly, it's probably because they feel better. Um, If I eat, you know, balanced meals throughout the day, I feel better. If I have like really erratic eating patterns and I skip meal or I have like, um, you know, for whatever reason, if I did have a bunch of sugar and then I didn't eat anything else, like, yeah, you might have a sugar high and you might crash later. You're going to not feel as well because your energy levels are going to be all over the place. And so, yes, providing that stable, structured eating pattern um, is going to make your kids feel better, which then they're going to act better, right? Because I do think sometimes our behaviors come out um, based on how we feel. They talk about people being hangry. If you're hungry, you can get angry and moody. If you have a blood sugar crash, you can get angry and moody. Um, So there are things, yeah, there are ways that food affects us like that. Um, So yeah, I agree 100% with that, Jackie. So the things to remember about food
0: sensitivities are... um, Just to be aware that it is possible, but they are rare. It's not like you're probably um, going to have it to everything. And if you have food sensitivity at one time, you can, you know, grow out of it and find that you're able to include those foods back
1: in your diet, but include them slowly, you know, take small amounts. Yeah. And if you need help, definitely reach out and work with a registered dietitian to do that. They can help you come up with a plan to reintroduce those foods and to monitor your symptoms, but don't feel like you have to avoid those foods forever. Just because you had a sensitivity test done five years ago, doesn't mean you can never have those foods again. There is a process, um, your body can heal, right. And you can, and it can change. So hopefully you will be able to reintroduce some of those foods back into your diet again. And that would be a great thing. So
0: we'd love to hear from you. So uh, drop us a note or um, let us know what questions you have or
1: future podcasts that you're interested in. Yep. All right. Thanks for listening today and have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Eat With Grace podcast. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing so you don't miss an episode. We would love to have you leave a review or comment on our Instagram page.
0: It's been great to share this time with you. and We pray that you have a grace-filled day.